We are going through a series on 1 John, and we come to 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 to 27. This is a word of the Lord. Uh, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all, all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. As the word of God. Let's just uh, pray real quick before we get started. Uh, God, we thank you just for this time, and we thank you for the ways that you speak to us. Um, you, know, you speak to us uh, primarily through uh, your word, and your spirit illuminates uh, the truth of your word, uh, but you also use uh, our community as we reflect, and as we hear from you, and as we meditate upon uh, your scripture. Um, uh, we recognize that you are a God who speaks, and there's so many voices out there, and there's so much uh, noise out there, and in particular, there's uh, so many lies and deceptions out there coming from the evil one, and what we need, want to do and what we need help in is to be able to discern your voice with clarity and to hear from you. So may this time uh, be such a time where you speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, as I said before, uh, we are going through 1 John and you know, this is a section that actually, in a somewhat direct way, addresses the crisis that this community is going through. And if you remember, uh, there are some people in this church community who had adopted some wrong beliefs concerning the person of Jesus Christ. And if you heard, uh, we're following along with the passage, you can tell from this passage that there were certain things that they denied. They denied that Jesus was the Christ, that he was the Messiah. They denied that he was the Son of God. Uh, they denied that he had come in the flesh. And uh, we had also said, you know, scholars think that there are these strands of pre-Gnostic thought that led them to this conclusion. Uh, and Gnosticism was like the second century heresy uh, that considered material world to be evil. And they claimed that one had to be enlightened with this kind of special knowledge. And therefore, Jesus didn't come to die on a cross to forgive sins. But Jesus came to teach us how to unlock the spark within us uh, towards a kind of enlightenment. And this letter predates uh, that second century uh, heresy of Gnosticism, but scholars say that uh, it's probably close enough that you probably have some of these early ideas forming uh, in this early community. So as a result, you have some heated discuss discussions, maybe some heated disagreements over the nature of Jesus Christ. And eventually what happened was this little group, this little sect broke away from the community. And so when John says in verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. He is talking about this uh, sectarian group that seceded. 
Now, just try to put yourselves in the shoes of those believers within the community in that moment. And you can only imagine the kind of impact that this kind of thing would have on a community. Uh, think about what it would be like to witness some of these disagreements, to witness the discord surrounding the person of Jesus Christ, and how much confusion that can leave you, if, especially if you're kind of observing these things. And you, you ask questions like, you know, who is right and who is wrong in this? How do you know who's teaching uh, what's true and who is teaching what's false? Uh, but not only that, these disagreements probably had some people uh, questioning the authenticity of their own faith. And so they started to question whether they really knew God or whether they really had eternal life or whether they were really walking in the truth. And that's why John is talking so much about the topic of assurance and the moral life. So rather than writing a theological polemic on why this group is wrong, John actually approaches it very pastorally. And he wants to encourage those who are remaining in this church community and give them reasons for why they can actually have assurance that they know the true God. He tells them, look at your lives. Are you obedient to the commandments of God? Are you loving one another? And if so, then it's evidence that you know the Father and that you indeed are walking in the light and therefore you should have some kind of assurance that you know the Father. Now in this passage, John, he starts to talk about uh, truth and he starts to talk about lies and he encourages them to abide in what they have heard from the beginning while rejecting those who are trying to deceive them. And so today what we're going to actually talk about is that we're going to talk about truth and lies. Now, uh, I think these days, I'm not sure uh, everybody has uh, thinks about truth in the same way. Uh, so on the one hand, you know, people have different perspectives. And I think it's legitimate to say that even though people have different perspectives, uh, many different perspectives can actually all be true. One person can look at the American flag and from their vantage point, it represents the military. It represents men and women who sacrificed their lives uh, to preserve American freedom. Another person looks at the American flag and sees it as ideals that are not accessible, ideals such as freedom and equality and liberty. And even though they are looking at the same flag, their experience and their identities shape their perspective of the flag. But both perspectives can actually be true to a certain degree. On the other hand, I don't think it's legitimate to say that truth is not something that operates outside of us, but something that's within us. And therefore, I can alter what is true in order to fit uh, what I want truth to be, in order to fit my desires. I think those are actually two different things, but they oftentimes get conflated as being the same thing. So someone can say, I'm going to speak my truth, which could mean that they are going to share things from their perspective, or it could mean that they are going to share something that is true for them, even though there may not be any kind of objective connection to reality. I had a professor uh, two years ago, and this professor, he teaches Black church history and Black studies in the uh, program that I'm attending right now. And he was telling the story. He has this... Uh, interfaith dialogue with black Muslims. And he said that a lot of black Muslims are actually former Christians. And ultimately the reason why they rejected Christianity, even though they may have grown up in it, is because they saw Christianity as being the white man's religion. And uh, my professor being a black man, he had to wrestle with that because on the one hand, he did understand the disconnect between the black experience and white expressions of Christianity. Uh, on the other hand, he did experience something that he believed to be true when he gave his life to Jesus, and that transcended uh, his experiences as a black man. So that started a journey for him, and it led him to academic studies in 
uh, Egyptian and Coptic church history, which I'm sure many people have not heard of. And uh, if he, uh, uh, and he's asking basically the question, you know, is Christianity, Christianity actually a white man's religion? And through his studies, he realized the answer is actually no. Uh, he would say Christianity has always been a global religion. So these days people are saying Christianity is becoming a global re religion. He actually says Christianity has always been a global religion, uh, but non-white perspectives of Christianity and non-Western perspectives of Christianity have not always been seen or heard as legitimate expressions of Christianity. But then he also says just because there are different expressions or different perspectives of Christianity, uh, he, he wants to make sure to say that doesn't mean Christianity is relative or reduced to a person or a cult culture's particular interpretation because there is still objectivity to truth. And he gives this illustration, which I think he actually got from somebody else, but I found it to be a really helpful way of understanding the, this dynamic. He says, it's like everyone is in a theater watching the same play. And depending on where you are sitting, your perspective of the play is going to be a little bit different. Someone sitting on the left side of the stage are going to notice different things than someone sitting on the right side of the stage. People in the front will see the play differently than people who are sitting in the back. And we typically get into trouble when we say, well, it's only a certain section. It's only the people who are sitting in the front who are watching this play correctly. And the other perspectives are not uh, legitimate or important. So he says, uh, Christianity is not necessarily a white man's religion, but he says it's the Western European white perspective that has been dominant uh, for so long. And therefore, it's not that their perspective is a bad perspective, but we also want to make sure we hear from folks in the other seats because Christianity has always been a global religion. And if I could just say, um, you know, uh, for us living in America, it's easy to look at Christianity through an American lens, but that's why going overseas and meeting believers of other countries is such a formative experience because then you get to see different expressions and their perspectives of uh, the same God that we worship. Now, at the same time, he also cautions that, again, it doesn't mean that there is no objectivity. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and salvation is through him alone. The Bible is God's word to us, and even though there are many different interpretations on God's word, it doesn't mean that everything is relative. Because in order to talk about the legitimacy of all of these different perspectives, you actually have to assume everybody is still watching the same play, right? And when you watch the play, not everyone gets to be the director uh, and change what they want to see on stage. An audience member can't say, well, I don't like the, the costume that this particular actor is wearing in this play, so I'm going to decide that the act actor actually wore a different outfit. That's not the same thing as saying there are multiple perspectives. So when John calls people liars and antichrists, and it's kind of like, well, he's using very strong language here, he is not talking about people who just have a different perspective. He's not talking about people who are sitting in different seats and yet watching the same play, he's talking about people who are trying to change the actor's costume. And in this case, the actor is Jesus, and they are saying that Jesus is not the Messiah, that he did not come in the flesh, and therefore he did not die on the cross for our sins and for our salvation. That is an entirely different story. That's an entirely different narrative. That's an entirely different play than the one that the apostles came and proclaimed through the preaching of the gospel in the beginning. And that's why John's language is so strong against him when he calls them antichrists and liars and deceivers. Uh, he recognizes uh, that their 
I guess, false narrative or the, the Jesus that they're uh, proclaiming to teach and say is the real Jesus is actually very damaging to their faith. And he addresses them in this situation. And that's, that's essentially what this, I mean, the entire letter is about, but this passage is about. Now, how does he address them? Well, the first thing he says in verse 18, and I know you don't have it up on the screen, but let me just read it to you. In verse 18, he says, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. When John says this is the last hour, of course, he's not talking about literal time, but he's basically saying this, that this is the final period or the final era in God's work of redemption, uh, in his plan of redemption. Uh, you know, in, in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 12, uh, John, uh, also the same author, he sees a war in heaven between Michael and his angels against the dragon. And the dragon who represents Satan is called the deceiver of the world. And in this world, the dragon is dealt a blow. And as a result, he gets very angry because he knows that his time is short. And in that anger, he makes war against the people of God and he goes on the attack. And that's a picture of the spiritual reality in this last hour. Uh, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, there is victory. Believers anticipate victory. Satan has been dealt a major blow. But because Satan has been dealt a major blow, he also knows that his time is short, and therefore he wants to attack the people of God with great vigor. And how does he attack? I think the primary mode of attack for Satan, he's called the deceiver for a reason. He deceives, he lies, and he distorts the truth of God's word with counterfeit narratives. And he has been actively doing that actually since the Garden of Eden, but he has been actively doing that um, for all of uh, human history. Now, when John calls people antichrists, uh, I think maybe that probably needs a little bit more explanation uh, because maybe we have uh, certain ideas of what antichrist is. Uh, in Christian history, people have identified the antichrist as a singular figure. Uh, so throughout history, we've had you know, different individuals being called the antichrist in ancient Rome. Some people thought Nero was the antichrist. Uh, and I think the reformers considered the Pope the antichrist. Uh, these days in this very polarized and heated political climate, uh, there are some people who are saying Donald Trump is the Antichrist. Now, some of those beliefs about a singular figure or a singular Antichrist is probably taken from our other parts of scripture, but uh, just, let's just look at it in context of John's letters and what he writes. He doesn't define Antichrist as this uh, singular figure, nor does he see it as someone who is necessarily in the position of great political power. Rather, an antichrist is someone who denies that Jesus is the Christ and does not acknowledge that Jesus has come in the flesh. That's John's definition of antichrist. Uh, if we take that and broaden it, we can probably say an antichrist is someone who distorts uh, the truth or the reality about Jesus Christ and therefore deceives people from putting their faith in the true God. And this leads to the second point. John wants them to remember what they heard from the beginning so that they are not deceived. Now, what he's talking about here is he's talking about the testimony of the gospel through the apostolic witness. Uh, we have John's testimony or we have John's witness concerning Jesus uh, in the gospel of John. And in that gospel, he says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He also says the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so John is basically telling them, remember what you heard from the beginning. 
Don't be deceived by these false teachers who are trying to lead you away from the real Jesus, thereby cutting off your fellowship with the Father and leading you into darkness. Now, by the way, when we um, read about those who are trying to deceive them, uh, we shouldn't look at them as if we are uh, somehow superior to them or intellectually superior to them or even spiritually superior to them. Uh, in other words, we don't want to think uh, that they were, these people were deceived in uh, the community that John is addressing because they were less educated or they're more gullible than modern people because, oh, we're so modern and we're so educated, we're not as susceptible to deception. Uh, the truth of the matter is any of us can be deceived. One of the reasons why lies are so deceptive is because there is something in a lie that resembles something that is true. And also within the lie, there is also something that appeals to the desires of our hearts. That's the whole notion of a counterfeit. Someone might be drawn to a counterfeit Gucci bag because it looks like the actual thing. Uh, but they are also drawn to it because maybe it's being sold at a large discount. There's something that appeals to the desire of our heart, but there's also something that is true about it that draws us. All powerful lies have this feature. Satan gives you something that is true enough to accept and to trust and then distorts it enough that it becomes a counterfeit, that it becomes harmful, and that it becomes spiritually destructive. Maybe Gnosticism was appealing uh, in the second century because it gave a true critique of the brokenness of the physical world. And maybe it appealed to the desire of people who wanted to feel like they had special knowledge or people who wanted to escape the material world. Uh, maybe prosperity theology is appealing because uh, it says God promises great blessing, but it distorts that message into material blessings in order to appeal to uh, the material idols of the heart. Uh, you know, I'm part of a, uh, this nerdy book club uh, with Fred, and we kind of read like these, you know, books on philosophy and different things. And one of the books we just read was The Communist Manifesto by Marx and Engels. And when I was reading it, I thought, wow, they actually have some really good insights and I can see the appeal of, uh, that, of Marx for people who are disenfranchised. Uh, but Marx also believed religion wasn't good because it gave comfort to the disenfranchised. And when the disenfranchised are comforted by their religion, then they're going to endure their own exploitation and they won't revolt and society will never change. And so uh, he was an advocate of having no religion or no God in society. Now, today, we are consuming a ton of things on social media. And even though there's a lot of good, insightful things that give good critiques, some of the narratives are not going to be consistent with God's narrative. And those are precisely the moments that Satan can use to draw us in to say, this is true, this appeals to our heart, and yet twist it a little bit so that we, uh, in a gradual way, we get deceived and we don't follow God's ultimate narrative. And by the way, uh, today we hear narratives of power uh, very often. Uh, but God's narrative is a narrative of redemption. Now, I'm not trying to say uh, anything about ideology, uh, because I think every ideology has particular idols that we need to be careful of. But I am trying to say that Satan will use different kinds of ideology to deceive people and to lead us away from the real Jesus. And that's what John means when he says, this is the last hour, and there are antichrists. That's something that we ought to expect in the last hour. And so what can we do to equip ourselves? Well, in verse 24, John says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. We have to allow the true word of the gospel abide in us so that we know it intimately. 
Um, now the, the, the language of abide is more than just knowing it in our minds, right? But think about, let what you heard from the beginning, that gospel message, let it live in you. Have a, a, an intimate relationship with that gospel message. And I think when we have that, that's actually one of the ways in which we protect ourselves from deception and from counterfeit narratives. You know, the way people are trained to recognize counterfeit money is not by studying all the different ways uh, money can be counterfeited, but what they actually do is they study the authentic uh, $100 bill, for example, so that they can actually detect the discrepancies of in the counterfeit $100 bills. And so Christians, I think Christians need to know the real Jesus, the real gospel, and the real word in such a deep and intimate way that it abides in us so that we can actually detect counterfeit narratives that are out there. And again, I know consuming through social media is the norm of the day, norm of the culture, but I guess my, uh, my encouragement, actually my warning to you is uh, make sure you are also abiding in God's word. Uh, because if not, if God's word is not abiding in you, uh, we are all going to be susceptible to deception. Finally, John says, uh, remember that you are anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. Uh, I can't get into the details, but that's actually a reference to the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit and the Word always go together, always work together to bring us into fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. Uh, the Spirit is the one who regenerates our hearts so that we have a desire to obey God's commandments and to love one another. The Spirit is the one who brings us into communion with God and allows us to abide in Jesus so that we know that which is true and we know that which is a lie. In that sense, these believers know everything they need to know, not by way of a college education or a graduate degree. They know everything they need to know from what they have heard in the beginning through the proclamation of the gospel and the anointing of the Holy One the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon their lives. They know the Father and they can have assurance that they know the Father because they have been anointed by the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts them about who Jesus is and what he has done for them through his death and resurrection. And that, friends, is also what gives us great assurance as well. Now, we're, we're actually probably going to come back to this topic because it comes up again in chapter 4. Uh, but for now, let me just conclude and say this. Um, you know, I know, I know um, as I get older, uh, in some ways, Christianity becomes uh, less complicated <laughs> because I remember when I was uh, a new believer and I was, uh, you know, growing at the end of my senior year in high school and then all throughout college. Uh, I remember I knew the important things to do is to make sure I'm, uh, praying and to make sure I'm in the word. And I don't know how different it is today as a, as a 38 year old. Um, of course, other things are important like, you know, Sunday service and church community and sacraments and evangelism and right, all those kinds of things. Um, but I also find that uh, as time uh, becomes, um, you know, less for us, it's, it's hard to carve out time for different things. Uh, those two things are also the easiest, the easiest things to go. And I actually think that's part of Satan's strategy, uh, to use our busyness to 
uh, neglect uh, important spiritual disciplines that really keep us focused on the true Jesus Christ and the true word. And, um, you know, we probably do have time, <laughs> but uh, we're probably on our phones too much if uh, we're honest, myself included. Uh, so let me say it in a very direct way. Let's take it day by day. Tomorrow, right? Tomorrow, uh, take a step and uh, abide in his word. And if you need some encouragement to pray, uh, wake up at 6 a.m., hop on the Zoom call, and uh, let's pray together. Uh, but I tell you, I see it more and more uh, clearly, at least from my vantage point. Uh, we are living in a time where there are many, many counterfeit narratives, and we are very susceptible to buying into uh, Satan's deceptions, and we really need to be in the word, uh, knowing the true Jesus. Let's pray together.